Alright guys, welcome to the 20th episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host, Robbie Burke, and on this episode I interviewed Brian Grasso. Brian Grasso is the co-founder of Free Thinking Renegades, also known as FTR. He's also the former co-founder of the IYCA, the International Youth and Condition Association. On this episode, me and Brian discuss many topics, including Brian's background, influences on Brian both as a coach and a person, why he decided to start the International Youth and Conditioning Association and why he left it, and why he decided to start the Free Thinking Renegades and what he hopes to achieve with FTR. We discuss many other topics on this show and as with every other show up until now guys it was an extremely informative interview. Brian shared a lot of great information and I hope you guys enjoy it. Okay, Mr. Brian Grasso, um, as with all my guests that have been on my show so far, it's, a, it's an honour to have you on. Just for anyone who isn't too familiar with who you are and your background, just fill us in. Yeah, well, I mean, I, uh, I spent about 16, 17 years in the uh, fitness and sport performance industry. And in that time, I, uh, I worked mostly with the competitive elite athletes, the national team, Olympic, and uh, professional level. But um, 2003, I accepted the, the IYCA, the International Youth Conditioning Association, which I just, after many years of working with kids and realizing I, I didn't know how to, to train and develop kids properly, I decided to go on a crusade and learn more about that and uh, realized that the industry was lacking at large in terms of, of governing voice related to youth athlete development. So after I learned and, and practiced a lot of different philosophical ideas related to LTAD, long-term athlete development, mm. um, I thought it was best to accept a certification based on educating allied health professionals on that really sensitive time of life and how to use physical fitness, physical activity, gym, uh, sports conditioning, etc. how to organize it properly. So I did that for many years and I retired from that in 2011. Um, Really, I felt really comfortable with the legacy I left in the fitness and sports industry. So, moved on to different pastures. I, I kind of like the idea of life being a, a, a buffet. We should all take different, you know, different bites of different things. So, 17 years served me well, and then I started uh, what's called FTR, Free Thinking Renegades, the Free Thinking Renegade Nation, which essentially is an inspirational movement that um, I suppose teaches and compels people to really look inside themselves and, and, and ascertain if they're living their best life. And if so, if not, which which I would I would submit is is the majority of people worldwide with so many dreams we have in our hearts and we don't pursue. Uh, we both uh, inspire and educate people on how to break down the barriers of those walls within in order to live what we call the art of inspired living. So I'm enjoying this career. It's my I guess my second or third career as an adult and I'm enjoying it this far. Who would you say have been your biggest influences, um, both as a coach and as a person? Yeah, my greatest influence as a coach was um, a man named Joseph Drabeck, D-R-B-I-K. He's a, a physical education instructor in Poland. He wrote a book called Children and Sports Training. I have, have that, that book. book yeah, you have that? Yeah, yeah, that book was a landmark book for me. It changed everything about my thoughts and ethos related to working with kids. It was absolutely a brilliant read, an easy read, but but chock full of information that um, more people, I mean, everybody from gym teachers to doctors to strength coaches to personal trainers, anybody who comes in contact with kids 
in a fitness or performance setting needs to read that book. He was my greatest influence in the uh, in the coaching realm. Um, it's funny when I think about the other stuff I do. One of my greatest influences. It's hard to pinpoint, to be honest, because um, you know through FTR, um, you know I've, I've written and produced a short film. Um, I, I do. I, I record and perform spoken word poetry. I'm in the process of writing a novel. Uh, I've written a book that just came out about two weeks ago called The Audacity of Success. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so much art has gone into what I'm doing now. It, it really is difficult for me to pinpoint a specific muse. But uh, a very, uh, not very known person, his name is Robertson Davies. Um, he, he's a novelist from Canada. Uh, I believe he's passed away now. But he wrote a trilogy of books, uh, the first of which was called Fifth Business. And that is a novel that to date I've read somewhere in the neighborhood of 35 times. The first time I read it, I was about 13 years old. The way he paints pictures with words, that kind of art is just so vibrant to me that uh, I, I, would, I would reckon he's probably my greatest influence in the artistic field of the work I'm doing now. Let's just go back to the IYCA. Um, when did you decide, I need to do something here about this? about youth coaching? You know, that's a great question. I started working with performance athletes in 1996. And um, I worked at a facility called the High Performance Specialist in Toronto, Canada. And all of our clientele were Olympians and professionals. So that's all, that's all I ever worked with was that level athlete. But sometime around 1997, uh, an influx of parents started bringing their kids into uh, the facility in order to, you know, we were the official training center of the Canadian Olympic team and the Toronto Maple Leafs hockey team. So we were well known and a very reputed training center. So I think parents started bringing their young athletes in to, to partake in what they assumed was the best training possible for their kids. These kids were anywhere from nine to 14 years old. Hmm. So what we started doing was taking our Olympic level training programs and kind of lessening volume lessening intensity, changing loads, obviously, um, but then using them on the kids. And, you know, we would train kids for six weeks. We, we, all of our programs were mesocycles of six weeks in length. And at the end of the six weeks, from a test-retest standpoint, the kids were always improving. Their biomotors were always getting better. Uh, vertical power, speed, strength, everything was getting better. Mobility, flexibility. So we were kind of breaking our arms, patting ourselves on the back. Uh, thinking we were doing great things uh, until I read um, I read a book and I believe it was it was Mel Siff's uh, Facts and Fallacies of Fitness or it might have been Super Training I don't recall as a matter of fact I think it was Super Training but there was a part in that book that he talked about over uh, super compensation patterns and the the idea that you know largely untrained organisms no matter what stimulus they'd be incurring mm. they would show improvements in biomotors. And that that wasn't to be taken, for all intents and purposes, that could be classified as a false positive based on the training age and the immaturity of the training age related to that particular organism. For some reason, that just set lightning bolts off in my head that what we were doing was getting biomotor improvements, but were they sustainable? Were they long-term? I remember thinking, that was the first time I started thinking about the fact that in the sports conditioning and fitness industry, the industry at large would be best served to stop looking at what we offer in the way of services as training and much more in the way of skill acquisition. Mm. Skill acquisition is a largely ignored 
part of the fitness industry, except in some circles where they do a fantastic job of it. So that was back in 97, and I think that's when the seeds were sown for me to go on this crusade of five years of learning and uh, listening and watching more than I spoke when I would watch other coaches. 2003, I accepted the IYCA, but I really do believe it was the spark uh, of that duality of, of kind of coming to this recognition in 1997 that these six-week training programs were improving by our motors, but was that enough? And then reading that Melsif portion of Super Training where we talk, he talked about immature organisms and how improvements are often false positives. All of that was a confluence in 97. I think that's when it was born in me that something needed to be done. And so the, the, the seed got planted, so you kind of have the why, but then the how, like how did, you said 2003 was the year, like did you, did you think I need, you know, I need a, a marketing guy, I need a team, what was, how, how did it become my YCA? Great question. You know, I, I, within FTR, for example, I teach the concept of never ask how. And um, the reason is, it's, it's a very, I don't mean to be intricate with this, but, you know, there are many layers of life in the universe in the way we think mm -hmm. we have unconscious programming we have ego we have conscious understanding there's a lot of it's more complex than people want it to be or give credit for it to being oftentimes but um i think that the question of how often brings us into the sight lines of what we know and what i mean by that is from my eyes my vantage point the experiences i've had in my life the conditioning i've experienced in my life and conditioning from my parents to early childhood to the country I grew up in to the general tone of the politics, all of that is a, a big ball of conditioning we all receive. Yeah. We see the world through a certain way. And whenever I ask how, my answer is coming from that sight line. Yeah. But that doesn't make it the right answer. It doesn't make it the best answer. It just means it's the answer I know because I've only ever had these two eyes. Uh, and so... I didn't know it then when I was developing the IYCA, but I understand it now. What we need to do is follow our whys. We need to follow why we're doing something and allow the path to unfold in front of us. And I, I, my biggest thing, I always say push on the ocean. When you drop a pebble or you push on the ocean physically, you really don't necessarily change the tide, at least ostensibly. You don't see that you're changing the tide. But if you were to look at the ocean from a very different angle, be it microscopically or from space, me pushing on the ocean actually does augment the tide, however minor. But that minor changes the ocean. If you think about that, that's rather remarkable. It changes what the ocean was going to do. So rather than trying to delineate a plan that understands how, our job is to push on the ocean, which means get active, do something, walk somewhere, move a certain direction, and let the path unfold in front of you. That being said, let me put it in practical terms. Um, at the time, I was a head strength coach for the Canadian National Synchronized Skating Team. And with that job, I traveled a great deal with that team. And I went to Italy, Czech Republic, Sweden, um, all over Europe, Ireland, all over Europe and all over North America hmm. uh, as, uh, as their strength coach and, and therapist. And so before departing for any particular location we were going to, I did a couple of days of research to see if I could find long-term athlete development type coaches, facilities, anything in where we were going. And that was from 97, 98 through until about 2002. 
I was the Canadian national team head coach, and then I moved to the United States in 2000. To, I, I, I assumed the job of the U.S. national team head coach. So I had about four or five years in there where I was traveling a great deal. So I would research to see if there were any coaches, specialists, experts, physicians, anybody in the pediatric world who specialized in this. I would connect with them before we left. I would ask if I could speak with them, ask questions, and I could simply observe. So I did a lot of that. I did a lot of that for about four years as I traveled the world, and I corroborated it with endless amounts of research and reading. I mean, that's when I read Joseph Drabeck's book. I poured into research. Um, Loughborough University in the uh, United Kingdom comes to mind. They have a great research laboratory and have had for many years. Um, and they, do a, they, put, they, they turn out a lot of research on the whole um, concept of pediatric exercise science. So all of that is is how it got started. I started to formulate in my brain what the industry didn't know and what they needed to know. So that was, I guess, my first, as I was doing all this research and, and investigation, that was my first, uh, I guess, realization was as I gained more skill and acumen and understanding myself, I just started to create, you know, what did we need to know, what didn't we know. After that, it wasn't even marketing, Robbie. For me, it was um, assembling a board of directors, a team mm. of people, that were credible, but could also provide all kinds of, um, not just insight, but all kinds of uh, expertise. Because I knew if we were creating certification, the first thing we knew was a textbook. And so I went on a search for people who would be willing to donate time in exchange for potential money later on once we started selling, who were passionate. And that's when people like Chris Brown, or not Chris Brown, Chris Scarborough, Lee Taft, Tony Reynolds, Dr. Kwame Brown, I ended up just finding all those people, again, not by searching for them, but by just simply going in my network and starting to talk to people about like, who's really good at this, who, who could give insight on speed development, who could give insight on you know, skeletal development, et cetera, et cetera. And all these people started coming my way all of a sudden, and thus the board of directors was born, and uh, the textbook was written by, by all these amazing contributors. And the original IYC textbook really was... I mean, it was a who's who. Dr. Kwame Brown, to this day, is one of the best pediatric specialists I've ever known in the art of movement and, and fitness. Uh, Dr. Cynthia LaBella was the chief medical director for the Children's Memorial Hospital in Chicago. I mean, just a landmark brain uh, of somebody who, who wrote a chapter for the initial textbook. Dr. Toby Brooks um, came involved in the IYCA very early on, and he's still with the IYCA today. So, again, it wasn't so much to create a how template. I simply started moving. I pushed on the ocean. And uh, it all just fell into place the way, the way it needed to, in, in the time that it needed to. Mm. How did you think people reacted to the IYCA? Like, what do you think the, the initial response was, a long-term response? Great question. It was a duality. The initial response by some people was fantastic. I mean, the IYCA kicked off huge when we first launched in late 2003. I mean, people jumped at it. I remember we launched the IYCA. I launched it on an interview phone call with Ryan Lee in September of 2003, and we were unprepared. At the time, the, the IYCA was me, me and one associate as full-timers. So we were responsible for everything, the website, the marketing, the, the continual voice, the uh, distribution of textbooks, the grading of examinations, we were responsible for all of it. 
And I, I, if I recall well, we sold about, in that first day we launched with Ryan Lee, we sold about 300 certifications the very first day. That's a, that was a mammoth amount of money, a mammoth amount of time. It, it was overwhelming to say the least. It was nauseating, to be honest, is, what, is how stressful it got. Yeah. Um, and that trend continued. The IOICA at one point, and it might still be, but at one point it was the fastest growing certification in the entire fitness industry. So that was remarkable. On the other hand, um, and I sort of don't mind, you know, it's not bad nothing, far from bad nothing, it's just saying names. Uh, we received a great deal of controversial feedback. Um, the American Council on Exercise, I remember I had lengthy chats with the director of education. His name is escaping me right now. But he was an avid non-supporter of the IYCA um, for two reasons. Number one, ACE already had a youth fitness certification or some kind of educational output. Um, and, and I guess the, the general feeling was that IYCA wasn't needed because the ACE, ACE had already done it. Mm. Um, plus, we were not accredited by the approved accrediting agency that the American Council on Exercise and, and a few other older certification bodies felt was necessary. Uh, the NSCA was not at all pleased. Um, they had had a, a long history of like Dr. A.B. Frankenbaum, who's a great guy and great mind. Um, he had been doing youth-based stuff for years and in some circles, and I don't think it came from him at all, to be honest. He doesn't see the type. But I had received all kinds of phone calls and emails from colleagues saying, you know, a lot of people at NSCA are very upset that you didn't include people like Dr. Amy Fagenbaum and all that in, in what we were doing. Um, there were individual coaches, well, well, Robbie, well-known names in the, in the industry. I could say one name and you'd all be like, oh, him, um, who bastardized me on their blogs, yeah. essentially calling it a, a thirst for money and that my, my intentions were devious. And I was this, this was my favorite one, and I remember to this day, that my goal in life was to earn money off the backs of kids. So, I mean, on one hand, the industry, the, the, the soldiers, the, the professionals, the people who are in the trenches every day, loved it, craved it, and made it one of the fastest growing certifications ever. Some of the staunch old school, been around for 40 years, certification and organizations were not fans at all. But that's the price you pay when you say something. Yeah. You're, you're gonna, yeah. You're, when you put something out there, you're gonna get criticized as well. Every time, yeah. And that was a good lesson for me in life. Yeah. So then we we come to um, your your departure with, with IYCA, and I, I suppose your departure coincides with the beginnings of FTR. So how did this come about? Yeah, actually, they're actually mutually exclusive. To be honest, at least to a degree. Um, towards my last uh, year or two with the IYCA, I, mean, I served. I obviously founded the organization. I served as CEO for its entire inception from 2003 to 2011. But in the last year, I'd say from summer of 2010 onward, I started to dabble a lot in hobbies. Um, I, I believe in a flavor of life. I believe not being myopic or unilateral, that the world is a big place and we should do the things we're passionate about. So, I mean, for example, in 2010, I... Um, I wrote and produced a, a, um, a stage show, and uh, we, uh, we we debuted it, won live 
performance in a, in a Chicago nightclub in uh, December of 2010. Um, that was a monstrosity amount of work. I had never been running for sleep. So, I mean, I would do my duty as a CEO of the LICA in a normal 9 to 5, and then from about 6 p.m. until 2 o'clock in the morning, I'd be working on my stage show. And that was for three months prior to the actual debut. And then a few months after that, I wrote and produced my first short film. So I was I, I noticed I started not just having all these passions, but I started acting on them. I started doing things that were more artistic, a little bit outside the realm of the fitness industry, or a lot outside the realm of the fitness industry. And um, that got me thinking. It got me just wondering if there was time. And I think serendipity is an amazing thing. One of my business partners in the IYCA, right around the time I was thinking about all this, uh, sent me an email. It was a very nice email. People have asked me so many times if there was dissension or some kind of discord as to why I left the IYCA, and there really wasn't. I get along great to this day with the people who own the IYCA. I'm still very proud of that organization. I'm still a massive supporter of it. But his email was basically along the same lines of what I was thinking, which is, hey, you know, just wondering. I see you doing a lot of other things. I think that's great that you're doing them. Are you starting to think that maybe your time in the fitness industry is done? And if so, let's have a conversation. No big deal. And I, I knew at that point that if I was thinking it and he was bringing it to my attention, it's worthy of serious, serious consideration. So um, understand the IYC had grown to one of the largest certifications in the world. Um, I had trained over 25,000 young athletes worldwide myself. I'd been a, le a guest lecturer all over the world, Dublin, um, Australia, New Zealand, all over the world. I was a consultant for, I was on the board of advisors for Nike, and I was co-creating a physical education development curriculum for them, with them. Uh, I, I, I founded or I co-founded a franchise called Athletic Revolution, which mm -hmm. currently is exploding in the United States. It's a training center specifically for young people. I believe they have like 60 some odd locations around the country right now, and we'll be expanding into Europe and Canada as well, I'm, I'm quite certain. Um, I had done a lot, and, and I honestly didn't know what was left to be done. And Robbie, I promised myself one thing when I was in the middle of the IYCA. I remember having this conversation with myself. I have watched, I was a part of the, the industry for nearly two decades, and I watched great coaches become cynical prats as they got older mm. and all of a sudden if they said it it must be divine wisdom and I've seen that over and over and over again with so many coaches guys who've been around for a long time they're great at what they do they it's just it's almost like the industry eats us up like once we have a status we we believe in the gospel wisdom of what we're preaching. And I promised myself that the IYCA and Athletic Revolution had to be bigger than me. It couldn't be about Brian Grasso. Those two organizations had to sustain. They had to thrive absent me. And we're all fallible. We're all human beings. But ego could not play a role in that organization or those two organizations growing. My ego could not get involved. And when I looked at my career, and I was so proud of what I've accomplished, I was so happy with the legacy I left, I did not want to turn into one of those cynical brats, and 
and I wanted the IYCA and Athletic Revolution to extend beyond my name. And all of that meant it was time to go. And so I sold uh, the IYCA to my business partners in August of 2011 without any idea of what I was going to do next. I had no, no clue of what I wanted to do next. I just had a feeling it was going to be in the world of inspiration and art. And December of that year, so roughly five months later, FTR was born. So let's get into FTR. What, what is it? How did it come about? You know. Yeah. Well, I mean, what it is, is not easy to quantify sometimes, to be honest. Mm. I mean, we're young. We're only 11 months old. Um, no, pardon me, we're 18, 18 months old. And in those 18 months, I, I always look at um, business development in a three-tiered platform, essentially. Phase one is throwing poop at a wall. I mean, literally, you, you're taking all the things you're passionate about and you're tossing them at a wall. And in order to ascertain what's going to stick, yeah. literally. And phase two is when things start to stick. Essentially, that means your, your client base, your customers are buying into what you're saying and doing. That's the sticking point. Phase two, then, is about automating and finalizing, but really automating that stuff on the wall so that you, you can... You can build it to a level that it's very reproducible on its own. It's, it, it doesn't take a lot of management <clears throat> in order to grow. And then phase three is then reassessing of what you threw, what stuck, why it stuck, and having a, a more crystallized idea of that takes you back to phase one, which is now throw more crap and walk. I have always laughed at the whole business plan model where everything is spelled out in its exactness. I've, I've built 13 businesses in my career. Most of them failed miserably. Three or four of them have wildly succeeded. And I don't, I've never seen a business work by plan. It, it works by intuition. I mean, of course you have to know where you're going and why you're doing it, mm -hmm. and a general idea. But the plan is subject to so many factors that you may or have, may have no control for example, the economy. The economy's tanked in North America in the last two years. Who can predict that? And and what do you do with it in the product and service industry if if you're considered a luxury item and most people are now tightening their bootstraps? So I mean those are factors that you just can't account for. And I think over planning is a huge mistake in business. So we're eighteen months in and I think the best way to characterize FDR is that we are the anti-motivation inspiration. Um, I'm not a big fan of the motivation industry. I've me never made, I've never missed my words about that. I think the motivation industry is full of beautiful people, well-intentioned people. But here's my concern. It's like a drug. If we do not go within, we will go without. And the motivation industry is a wonderful band-aid to problems, issues that reside well within, well within these layers. That's not to be mistaken for psychological intervention or, or psychoanalysis. But I look at posters and quotes on Facebook that get shared 10,000 times with 30,000 likes. And it's always like the most riveting motivation. 
motivational statement. Like, live today like it's your last day. Oh my God, that's so brilliant. I like it. 10,000 likes, 10,000 shares. How many of those 10,000 people are actually doing that? Though? Yeah, yeah. That's what the motivational industry does. It, that's what it does to us. It gives us this fleeting, temporary high that makes us feel good. But then it's gone. What's left is, I look at Henry David Thoreau, most men die with songs still in their heart. That is so true. Mm. Um, <clears throat> there's an article that's very famous now. It's called The five, uh, the Top Five Regrets of Death. I don't know if you've seen that, Robbie. It was uh, yeah, I, I, did, I, I just came across it there a few days ago, yeah. Gorgeous. Written by a nurse, and she chronicled elderly patients who were at death's door over 20, 30 years. And she came up with five, top five regrets that people had at death. The number one regret was I did not live a life truer to myself. That I did not pursue the dreams and passions that were in me. That is the number one regret people have at death, chronicled over several, several years by someone who had no stake in chronicling it. She was just recording what was being told to her. Yeah. So if that's true, which we know it is, how does a poster that says, live today like it's your last, how does that help us? Are we living like that? Are we doing things with our lives that are extraordinary? And that's what FTR is. Free Thinking Renegades is about, listen to the title, Free Thinking Renegades. We're not going to be societally conformist. We're not going to be rebels for no reason. But why do we have to do it this way? Why do we have to go from high school to college to a job? Why do we have to do it in that order? Why do we have to play the safe road rather than give life a shot and follow our passions in the faith that no matter what happens, it'll be an, like, we'll figure it out. Why do we have to do it this way? We don't. And somewhere along the history of mankind, someone has sold us a story that the safe road is smarter and that, you know, being audacious is immature and we've bought that story the problem is that's a story we die with and so FTR helps us go inside understanding our ego voice our unconscious programming how to find true self how to bring all that out in a way that actually allows us to follow our dreams in the way we want to but have always felt scared and prohibitive about so kind of like so, that, a, so like a bit like uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, like self reliance. Don't be a conformist. Yes. Absolutely, well said. Uh, so, w with regards to you know cultural conditioning, and I don't know if you've ever ever heard of this man called Joseph Shilton Pierce. Have you ever read any of his work? No, that doesn't sound familiar. You you would absolutely love Joseph Shilton Pierce. He he's an expert on kind of child development, but he he talks about this thing called enculturation, basically you know being a victim of our environment and our culture and the effects it has on us as, as a youth and developing our subconscious mind but his work is outstanding like but uh, what are the problems you see with, with culture society education these things that that condition our, our minds particularly our subconscious minds oh that could be what a great question the answer could be forever um, I'll try to qualify um, you know part of what I teach in FTR is something that I call the triad mm. um, I believe every individual on the planet should create a triad of their own. It's the philosophical wisdoms that govern their lives. For example, my triad says warrior culture, intellectual stimulation, 
and spiritual enlightenment. That's the philosophy in which I govern my life. Um, I'm a boxer. Um, everything I do in the way of training and nutrition supports my warrior lifestyle. I mean, I train very hard. I fight hard. Everything I do, my, my dedication to stretching and foam rolling and everything, that's my ethos as part of my world is warrior culture. No, you know, it's not about training. It's the culture of my life is warrior. Intellectual stimulation. Um, it's not just about reading for me. It's, it's conversation. Gary, <coughs> yeah. my fiance and I, we actually, you know, where most entrepreneurs are busy at work all the time, we have parts of our schedule every single day that we block off time to have conversations. She's reading a book, I'm reading a book, we'll sit and talk about those books for an hour. That kind of cognitive intellectual stimulation is a necessity for me. Mm -hmm. I love that part of my life. And because it's on my triad, it's, it's an ethos. It's something I, it's top of my mind. It's always there. It's, it's part of how I run my world. Yeah. <clears throat> Spiritual enlightenment doesn't necessarily mean meditation, but it can. But it does mean what we talked about at the beginning. I don't want to just see the world through the eyes I have. I recognize that there are great forces in, in, in the universe and the world that I have no idea what they're about. Matter of fact, my three favorite words in this order, I don't know. Because it, it gives me thirsty, spiritually speaking, to learn more, to understand more, to, to think more, to deduce more. So that's my individual triad as a philosophical ethos that governs my life. It makes the day-to-day -day action of being Brian Grasso very refreshing because we all have distractions. We all have bills and traffic and other conditioning patterns, politics, the economies in the tank, um, the threat of terrorism. I mean, these are conditioning things that bombard us always. But that triad is my culture. Yeah. So it's my culture, okay? The reason I bring all that up and I say it is that I find it fascinating when I think of it in the reverse, absent us deciding and creating the culture for ourselves that we want, we are left to placate to the culture we're given. And that culture is based on where you were born, who your parents are, how many siblings you had, what were the relationships like with all those people. That is your culture. Um, I find it Remarkable, and this is an example of motivation versus inspiration and without within. I find it remarkable that more people don't look around the world and see exactly that. That <clears throat> what value your early childhood, your family placed on relationships, on physical connection, hmm. on fitness and proper nutrition, on the importance of education, on religion. All of that has become our subconscious programming, and it absolutely dictates our life. The unconscious programming is the most powerful thing in the world, yeah. and yet it's hidden. We don't know it's there. It's on this nonstop, endless loop. There's little films being played of what Ryan Grasso is, who he is, what he should be doing. And as much as in the, I look at the fitness industry, we want to go on diets, we want to lose 60 pounds, but we keep making bad choices that prevent us from doing these or accomplishing these goals we claim we want. That dissonance, that is a huge dissonance 
that motivation can't change. The dissonance is because our unconscious programming is set to a playlist that although we can ostensibly want to be more fit and lose weight, we continually make self-sabotaging choices that grow a dissonance wider of us getting there. So having a poster that has a great-looking physique and someone saying the battle is between you and you, and then we all like it, but what does it change? We have to go inside to understand what our conditioning says. And um, I find it remarkable that more people don't look at it like that. That's the conditioning parameters I'm I'm referring to. And if I could, Robbie, I'm so long-winded. There are no absolute truths in life. I can only think of one. We're mortal and we die. Our physical bodies will perish one day. Aside from that, I don't really know any absolute truths that are true for all of humanity. And the, the example I always give is death. In North America, Western Europe, when a loved one dies, it's generally speaking mourned. It's a time of sadness, it's a time of grief, it's a time of mourning. And yet there are cultures all over the world where death is a celebration of life because death is considered the, the exact bridging point between physical life and afterlife, which is where everyone wants to go. Death is celebrated, not even remotely. No one cries, no one gets sad. Everyone celebrates, they have dances. So if you look at that, for example, why in North America do we mourn death of a loved one? Is it because death, the absolute truth, that when a loved one dies, we have to be sad? Well, clearly not, because other cultures show us that they don't mourn death, which means there is no absolute truth to it. If I were to just be frank, why do we mourn death in North America? Because we've been conditioned to believe that's the appropriate response. Pure and simple. If we were born in that culture where they celebrate death, that would be our conditioned response. Conditioning and unconscious programming dictates our life. Yeah. And until we go inside to see that, we're absolutely nowhere. Yeah, one of the the most kind of, I suppose, I don't want to say famous, but more the more popular kind of people who brought the subconscious conscious kind of mind to my attention was Bruce Lipton. He wrote a book called Bi- Biology Belief. And there's a great uh, video clip of Bruce talking and he talks about you could read a book about, you know, nutrition and health and wellness. And, you know, you could be someone who's very overweight or very unhealthy and go, oh, I understand now. I understand. But he says consciously you understand but your habit subconscious mind still says things like I want the cheesecake or I'm not gonna I'm not gonna you know that conditioning mind and that's the thing that it's exactly like looking at that post on Facebook you know consciously we go yeah that makes sense live live today as if it was your last but your subconscious mind is like yeah but I'm just gonna I'm just gonna line the couch and flake out like but uh, it was really really good and even I liked what you said just a few minutes ago there about you know you read a book and you and Kerry would discuss it over because Paul Check talks about this thing education versus experience and Paul Check would say education is where you you read a book and you, you 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 understand the book and you understand all the details of the book, whether it's you know whatever a scientific book or any sort of book. But he's like, do you have the experience of that? Like you know, have you experienced it? Like you could read a book on nutrition, but like, have you actually done that nutritional protocol? Have you felt it in your body? Have you experienced it? And like you know, a lot of a lot of people think that education and learning is just 
books and DVDs and podcasts, but it's conversation. It's actually sitting down and and it's th- it's okay to just go out and think and not listen to anything and just actually even listen to your own thoughts. That's still education. Well, it's experience. But you know, yeah. just, we're 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 so used to culturally, we're conditioned that oh, education has to be, you know, uh, you have to be reading or it has to be a stimulation of some sort. But it can be an inner thing like medicate, medit- or not medication, but meditation or just even yeah. listening to your own thoughts. Like, agreed. You know, I, I like through FDR we teach the concept of perspective. Yeah. That perspective is varied, right? And that if perspective is varied, what we believe to be true isn't necessarily true. It's just the truth we know. And the reason I say that is, and the reason Carrie and I have conversations about our books, is that oftentimes we'll be reading the exact same book, and then we'll spend an hour talking about it. And what we drew from a certain passage might be completely different. Yeah, yeah. Because her eyes see it one way, and mine see it a different. It's brilliant. And that's the perspective. And the things I've learned from Carrie about reading a passage, we, we read the same page. The page was great, and I learned a lot. But I learned 30 times more from listening to her perspective on that same page. Yeah. That's education to me. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's great. Brian, I'll, I just, I won't keep you too much longer. I've got another two or three minutes. Um, just with regards to then culture and society, like what do you think could be done? Like, you know, you always bring these things up with people and they go, well, you know, it's very it's very idealistic or euphoria sort of things. I don't know if you've ever seen the Venus project by, by Jacques Fresco, you know, Fresco's this kind of victim of culture and he, he does have a lot, you know, a lot of his stuff is excellent. And of course there's going to be, there's going to be holes and flaws and things, but I definitely think he, he's definitely onto something good with it, with a, the fact of a resource based economy. And again, when you, when you tell people you know, about resource based economy, they go, Oh, what about money, money, money. But again, I always say to them, that's conditioning. That's cult- we're cultured. We're cultured to believe that reward is associated with money. Like I always say to them, I always use a traffic light analogy. I don't know in Canada, I'm presuming it's the same, but in Ireland, you know, you have red, amber, green, they're the traffic light colors. If we yep. change, if we change that traffic light tomorrow to three just different colors completely, I have a son in five years time, and I tell my son, do you know the traffic light used to be red, amber, and green? And he'd be like, no, he he won't be able to imagine that because he's like he's only ever known that these three new colors. So it'd be the yep. exact same with regards to money. You'd be telling, do you know that we used to have money for what? Because we used to have to give it for our food, and the child would be like, why? Like, right? Exactly. So true. Spot on. Because like uh, again like. It's just with economy, like the the scarcity thing. You know, is that there's there is no need anymore in our society for scarcity because we're at such a, a stage technologically where where we have such technology that there is no we could eradicate scarcity of everything. It's yes. a like a, Jock Fresco uses the analogy of if it rained money today, everybody would be out in the street shoveling money into their house. But if it rained money every single day, you'd be trying to burn the stuff and get it out of your house. So. And we, we, we are in that situation now where we don't need to have scarcity. I mean, if we put all of our energy that we put towards nuclear bombs and all that stuff and said, listen, scientists, instead of creating bombs to blow each other up, how about you, you come up with ideas to feed the world and have organic and, and you know, reproducible agriculture? Like, we, we, we definitely have the technology to do that. We, we've had it for at least the last 90 years. So sure. I, but in your mind, for the last just two or three minutes for your wrap-up, I know it's hard to do it in a few minutes, but... In your mind, like, how would you see small steps, you know, not eradicating money, but just, you know, little things, you know, do you see it education, do you see it like as 
we're starting we're starting kids in school too early they need to be left alone for the first six years of life don't indoctrinate kids with religion let them be their own person because this is another, another thing before it's, it's certainly my interview here which is <laughs> but but it's just another another kind of thing we talk about this subconscious mind and i actually sat down a while ago and i was just thinking i was like have i ever had an original thought that has been mine ever or, or have all of my thoughts been infiltrated by my conditioning? Like, have I ever had a, like, has Robbie Burke ever had a thought that's just been Robbie Burke's? Sure. So, like, but in your mind, just what, 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 what do you, what, what, what do you see? What, what do you think could, you know, help us transcend to, to, to greater, greater things? Absolutely. Well, I think um, the first order of business for me would be the whole concept of within. I think that we need to sit in stillness individually. I think that. Adults need to, I think we need to find perspective and context. And the way we teach it in FTR is be aware of your story, be vulnerable to your story, release from your story, and then change the story. Mm. Because it's all a story. All of it's a story. And I often point this out with like religion, for example, which I know is a contentious topic, but it shouldn't be. We should be able to talk about it. Exactly, it shouldn't be. I mean, yeah, of course. I, I happen not to have faith, and if, if someone who's listening to this does have faith, nothing I should say, or nothing I'm going to say, should shake their faith. I, I respect their faith. I'm good for them. But I often find religion is so culturally valid, and it's almost like so many people don't recognize it as such. Meaning, if I was born in you know the Middle East, most likely I would become Muslim. Yeah. I was born in the United States, most likely I'd become Christian. But isn't that a product of cultural identification from an early age? Isn't that a product of conditioning? Mm-hmm. And I'm not to detract from any separate religions, Catholic, Protestant, Islam, Judaism, none of those things. But it's just it's a point of consideration that I think if we just disarm ourselves from being defensive and just think about that for a second, if you were born in the Middle East, the odds of you becoming Christian are like less than 1%. That doesn't mean Christianity is invalid. It simply means that the society you were born and bred and conditioned into was Islamic. Thus you became Islamic. I find it fascinating that more people don't look at it that way. It doesn't make religion bad. It makes fighting about it stupid. If I could just say that, it makes fighting about religion so dumb. Because it's all just a story. It depends on the story you happen to believe in. And I don't. when I say it's all a story, I'm not saying it's not a real story. That's up to the individual beholder. If you believe Christ was the Son of God, then God bless you for that. I have no interest in saying otherwise. But that's your story. But it's such an identification of where you were born and how you were raised. Yeah, yeah. That, that's just, I mean, that's an easy one to look at. So... Until we go inside, and and this is where we always start in FTR, you first have to submit to the fact it is all just a story. All of your entire life is a story. Well, I'd love to do that, but i got bills to pay. Okay, well, so do I. Well, I'd love to do what you do, but I've got kids. I've got two kids. I'd love to be able to do that, except all of our accept, all about our excuses and our reasons, they're all stories. Everything about our life is a story. There is immense power and freedom in submitting to that. Because it means you all of a sudden, once you submit to it, you become an architect. 
you're no longer at the whim of the world as much as you can just calmly and rationally understand it's all just a story in the way I'm perceiving it, mm. how I'm choosing to react and perceive to it all. So that's where it has to start with adult. We have to sit back, go within, drop our defenses psychologically, Robbie, lower our egos. Yeah. We have to lower our egos and we simply have to say, this is all a story. It's all a story. And that's a tough one for people to get their brains around. How could it be a story? This is my life. No, it's not your life. It's your chosen perspective of your life based on your conditioning and context. Yeah. In that, it's all a story. So that's where I believe adults have to start. It's idealistic, but we have seen so many changes in people worldwide in the last 18 months who have gone through our program. Um, in terms of kids, I have two young kids. I worked in the school systems when I was with the IYCA on a physical education developmental platform. And now that I no longer do that, but I'm, I'm you know, looking as a parent into my kid's school, the school system is about as big a crock as anything on the planet. Yeah. It is, it's a mess to say, in North America, I'm speaking only from my experience here, it's a mess to say the least. I, I, Robbie, I wouldn't know where to begin to talk about what is messy about the school system. The idea of a young boy or young girl having to sit down in one place for three hours oh. to concentrate, <laughs> I can't sit down in one place for three hours to concentrate, and yet no one chastises me when I go out of my chair. They get yelled at. They get detentions. Um, it, it is the proverbial fitting a square peg into a round hole, mm. taking kids through stuff like that. It's overly academic. My seven-year-old daughter routinely comes home with an hour's worth of homework to do at night. After seven hours of school, she has an hour of homework. She's seven years old. And if that's not bad enough, I, I help her with her homework. It's busy work. It's not cognitive stimulating. It's not philosophically interesting. It's, it's coloring and fill in the blanks and word searches. Stuff that is just so incredibly mundane and not practically cognitive and it's not stimulating. It's busy work. For an hour, four nights a week, after seven hours of school, she has busy work. So that's another problem. My, uh, my eight-year, my nine-year-old son has just finished up two weeks of exams. Exams. Two-hour exams where he's to sit for two hours with a pencil and answer questions. He's nine. It, it's it's not it's not adjudicating on anything related to his intelligence. Yeah. It's not. It, it's got nothing. It's busy work that is a false positive on what his brain capacity really is, and that's true for all kids. My kids get one hour of gym class a week on one week and two hours a week on opposite weeks. That's not nearly enough. Kids need to, forget the sports stuff, they need to run around. Kids need to run around. And Loughborough University has done immaculately beautiful studies on over a long-term uh, uh, study group. They took about 25% of academic curriculum away from kids in a school setting and instead infused it with proper measures of athlete development those kids scored higher cognitively than the kids who have the entire academic system. It's not rocket science. Kids moving brain synapses, it, it's all part 
of motor cognitive development. And the more we make kids sit down and do stuff that doesn't matter, is boring, is not stimulating, this is the part in Carrie, my fiance said it best. We force kids for 15 years to endure a system where they cannot be themselves. And that's wrong. That is just plain wrong. We force them to endure a system, not thrive within, not create, not be magically brilliant. We force kids to endure a system for 15 years where they cannot be themselves. They have to placate to those standards. That is disgusting. Absolutely disgusting. And if we were if we were smart, we would not get egos involved. We'd rip up the entire scholastic system and start again. Yeah. We say this makes sense, this doesn't. That's how we change cultures. Right now the US and Canada sit somewhere in the lower end of academic performances worldwide. And I, I, I listen to the research. Finland is perennially at the top. And I, I, I listen and I read what the PhDs in Finland are saying about their school system versus the one here in North America. And it always comes down to the same things. The PhDs there are saying kids are in school too much here. Kids are being tested for no reason and too often here. There's not enough creativity. There's not enough free play. There's not enough stimulation that how do you look at that they're number one we're number 50 and not say well we should do more shit like that i mean how do you not do that so i apologize for my long-windedness but i could go on and on about that one yeah well we'll, we'll wrap it up now because i know you got to go too but uh like there's i don't know if you heard of the the waldorf education systems rudolf yeah. steiner and their whole thing is you know education through movement and dance and song and it's far more experience based as well and it goes back yeah. to kind of steiner stuff steiner was has this sort of like it's really like it's kind of like a long-term development plan sort of kind of thing as well except it's more catered towards the development of the child's brain and he basically says you know if you try and sit a child at a desk at four or five years of age you are screwing up their brain development because their brain is not at a place where it has the capacity to deal with any of that stuff whatsoever like yeah, and then and then he says it affects them later on when they get to this kind of second growth spurt around fourteen or fifteen, and he's just like intellectually their brain is just you've destroyed them already. Like, and there's another great there's another great book called Training the Human Plant by a guy called Luther Burbank. It was written in like nineteen oh four, and Burbank is a, it's only like a hundred pages and it's huge writing. It's very quick read, but he says a great thing in the book. He's like, listen, when you have a child. Well, you know, he doesn't say, like, listen, when you have a child, whatever way they spoke back then. But he's like, you know, with a child for the first 10 years, don't indoctrinate the child, don't have it sitting at a desk, have the child out in nature, don't tell the child you're Catholic, you're Protestant, you're Muslim, let the child yes. be a child, like, out in nature. So, uh, it's funny. Absolutely. It's, it's funny, my, it's my last point before we wrap up, too. I, I've, I have lots of friends here in Ireland who have become, you know, um, we call it primary school here. Primary school is, I don't know, like, junior high, is it, in America or whatever it is. Um, you know they mainly work with five-year-olds to 12-year-olds and uh, but it, it's funny I've got a lot of friends who've just recently you know just just qualified as teachers and basically they're just saying that about two or three years ago the whole education system has changed as in like they, they were like yeah what we were teaching our teachers before for like the last 80 years was completely wrong like you know the way so that apparently now they're teaching the new teachers like oh you need to have the kids out every day have them more active Get them, out, yeah. get them outside, get them playing games, do more song, 
more movement with them uh, you know definitely no yelling at them and it's, it's just like they're starting to realise uh, maybe we kind of screw people up and even it's funny you said about Finland because Sweden so it's my last thing now my very last thing Sweden this comes from Joseph Shilton Pierce Sweden apparently has a very low crime rate and jails and, and money like very low amounts of their government money goes to you know criminals because there's very low crime and the reason why this is is because the PhDs and the, and the scientists and people in this field of you know psychology and whatnot, they have done this thing in Sweden where the first three years in Sweden the mother gets a year and a half paid to stay with the child at home and then the other the other 18 months the father gets a year and a half home so the child gets three months of close connectedness with their parent and their guardian and they, they've correlated that when they get this love and attention for the first three years and protection of their of their of their mother and father or, or their whatever whoever their guardians are that later on down their life they're they're much less likely to to you know to be to be a criminal or to cause any trouble because they had that Brilliant. very critical you know period in their early in their life. Brilliant! I love that. This was great, man. I, I really enjoyed this. <laughs> we should do this again. Yeah, definitely. Any any time. Um, but sure, we're 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 still rolling here. So Brian, listen, just where, where can people find out more about you and any any you know um you've got any products or, or resources or anything you're working on coming up? Yeah, you know what? Go to uh, freethinkingrenegades.com. It's my open blog. We post there daily. Um, and every link to everything else that FTR has is on that site. So just freethinkingrenegades.com. Enjoy it. That is nothing but free information. We have uh, courses and, and, and archives of blogs that go back for months. So that'd be the first place to start. All right, there, guys. You heard it from the, from the man himself. So... Mr. Brian Grasso, just for myself and all my listeners, I want to say thanks a million for taking out an almost almost an hour of your day. We originally penciled in for forty five minutes, but this was both of us are kind of long winded with our with our explanations. We did, we did pretty good. I enjoyed this Robbie. Yeah, I appreciate it. Brilliant, brilliant. Okay, so guys, uh, thanks for listening and, and again thanks to Brian and um, I'll talk to you guys soon. Take care. <laughs>